Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. From our financial life, to our relationships, to our kids, to our health, we're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about women, working, money, and family, and in every episode, we consider the research and share our takes on what we're learning every day about breadwinning. I'm Jennifer Owens. I write about working, wellness, women, and founded the Working Mother Research Institute. And most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Raquel Ellison. But on this episode of The Breadwinners, I'm joined by Sarah Deming, a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at Washington State University, researching the intersection of motherhood and paid work. You'll be shocked to hear that she too is a working mother to three sons. She has worked full-time, part-time, built a business, and now she's gone back into the highly lucrative world of academia to pursue her doctorate, all of which is to say, welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And <laughs> I mean, I can just hear the dollars rolling in from academia, so... <laughs> Put this all up, right? My- yeah, you know, it's all about the bread, man. So... Well, so at the Breadwinners, we always like to start off with a trend or a stat to kind of ground our conversation. And so it seems very appropriate to start with a stat from your own research. So in late 2018, you surveyed just a couple of working moms, 1,700. And one of the themes you immediately uncovered involved the reality gap between what women thought work and family would look like and what... (laughs) The reality really was. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, that survey and, you know, what you found out. Yeah. So this was part of a master's degree uh, that I started at University of Idaho a couple of years ago. And a wise professor of mine once told me that you study either what you are or what you're afraid you'll become. <laughs> Definitely studying kind of my life and the lives of, you know, the women that I had met over the last 12, I guess at that point, 12 years of parenting and digging into the research. And I'm realizing that much of the research in the sociology family studies lit is about it's quantitative, you know, survey data based on what women do. So we can observe that when women have children, they're more likely to leave the workforce, cut back their paid work hours. There's all these impacts that we can document. And in fact, there's some quite a bit of research that suggests that the gender wage gap we hear so much about the 80 cents on the dollar, it kind of changes over the years, but not enough, but that that's actually a motherhood gap that single childless women are coming very close to approaching males earnings. It's really a moment of having children where that employment rate drops, the wages drop, they choose, you know, more family friendly work, all things. But what I really felt was missing was the voices of women. I felt that what women do isn't necessarily or if reflection of what they maybe wanted to do, what they thought they would do, what they had tried to do in the past and had to make adjustments for. And so I set out to, originally, I just wanted to do an interview study, but I wanted to get a nice round, you know, kind of diverse group of women to interview. So I was like, well, I'll just do a little survey. And from the survey, I'll recruit, you know, some different types of women that follow different paths and kind of go from there. Yeah. So I designed the survey, launch it, and in 24 hours, have 500 responses. Yeah. <laughs> We women have want to tell our stories. Oh my God. Thank you for asking. I know. I had this one kind of curmudgeony committee member on my master's committee and she, she had said, nobody likes to fill out surveys. So you're probably not going to get anyone to fill out a survey or it's going to be hard. 
we had talked about like offering incentives. Okay. Yeah. I kind of feel like moms want to talk. And that was just the refrain I heard so often um, in the research or in the survey responses, yeah. just women saying, thank you for asking. No one's ever asked me what I, I would like to tell you this wanted yeah. to know, or, you know, what I planned and how this kind of came to be. So long story short, you know, while not representative sample at all, it was, you know, kind of convenience, it spread in a, right. a snowball way, but I did achieve a pretty good diversity. I mean, there were women from all 50 states. It still skews, you know, white middle class as a lot of this research does, but I do think I I was able to capture some diversity of experience, but but really the main takeaways is that I kind of focus on two things, the decision-making factors of how women made these choices um, of how they would adjust their work if at all um, upon having children, but also um, that there's just a huge chasm that exists between what their ideal arrangement would have been and the arrangement that they even were planning on. So I think, I think it was around 30% of women had a, you know, said that the plan that they had matched what their ideal was. And then from that, of course, we all, you know, anyone who's had children and had a job understands or just had children in general, right? The best laid plans of mice and men, like plans only go so far as well. So then there's kind of this discrepancy right in the planning spot. And then there's also discrepancies as time goes on, whether that's right after a baby is born and it has health concern, you know, health issues that require something different or so then it's, you know, along the course of motherhood, there's also kind of a further disadvantaging of mothers where they then end up changing their work kind of over the course of motherhood in ways that they maybe didn't anticipate. So that's kind of the cliff notes version of what the survey entailed is really focusing on these decision making factors. And then when things changed, when they made a different plan along the way, kind of what the reasons were for that adjustment. So if they reduce their work hours, if they switch jobs, kind of trying to get at some of the the underlying ideas of why they might have had to make those choices or felt that they, you know, were motivated to adjust their work. In some yeah. Way. Well, did you find that they had an ideal situation in mind to start with? Because I would say my background writing about this stuff all the time too, that, oh, of course, you know, there's no ideal and, and I've done it for 15 years, you know, all that. But when push comes to shove, I, I inherently know that I have a deep sense of what is right. And it stresses me to know when, when it's wrong. So I guess I like, do they consciously have an ideal or unconsciously? Have, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I ramble. do. And I think, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the problems, I'm actually not a huge fan of survey research, although I, I think we can learn some stuff for it. I really like to have, I'm actually kind of following up in this PhD program, I'm turning this project into more of an interview project. Because I do think sometimes, mm. you know, there's things that there's yeah. that a survey can't capture. But as far as when I did ask women what the ideal was, The overarching theme was that they just wanted them or their partner to reduce their work a little bit, right? I didn't ask them how many hours or the idea of kind of scaling back or, you know, my partner would scale back. Maybe ideally we would both scale back. And I had an open-ended spot for an open-ended response after that question. And, And the word that came up more often than any other word as far as what an ideal was, was just time. I think that people, you know, don't want to put six week old babies in childcare, or they want to yeah. be there after school, like there was just this kind of sense of wanting, you know, more time than they felt that their, you know, current work arrangement might, you know, necessarily provide. Yeah. So I think if there was any 
theme. It was something about, you know, and of course, I didn't ask, like, what's your ideal for the first six years of your child's life? It was more about that immediate, like, what would you, you know, if money was no object type of thing, what would you, um, you know, what would you do? And did they have have a sense or just a sense that they could control for, because I totally get that, that idea of, as someone who has teens now, yeah. Boy, I can't even think about it's almost a day to day thing about what I think the ideal moment is. But that comes from being a mom for a long time, you mm-hmm. know, and it was so much work to get pregnant. And it was all about, you know, and then, you know, when you do the birth plan, uh-huh. you know, how much work you went into, especially with baby number one, about like, this is what it's going to be. And, and I'm going to do this. And then, or it, maybe it's just me, but it, like thinking out to what the ideal thing looks like, it wasn't something I gave, what the ideal like scenario looked like. I'm not sure that I had a plan. I just remember being super, super sad when baby number one went to daycare. And then when baby number two went to baby care, I was much more comfortable with it because mm-hmm. I had just seen the Will Smith movie Happiness, which basically makes the point that supporting your family is part of being a parent too. And I was like, yes, mm-hmm. that is a concept I can grasp onto. But is that an ideal situation? No, I didn't like I didn't have a birth plan mm-hmm. for post birth. Yeah, I guess. Oh, I think that's such an interesting I think you just, you know, hit the nail on the head as far as what I'm really interested in is this idea of planning. And there is some some research, actually, some big quantitative, you know, the National Bureau of Economic Research, I think, released a study that kind of proves that women underestimate the impact of motherhood on their careers, like from a large national survey. Um, Like if you ask women, you know, what percentage think they'll be in the labor force at age 30. I mean, there is just a gulf between (laughs) what they say and then how many 30 year old women with children are actually in the labor force. So I think this gap of not knowing the plan, I mean, I would say, or having a plan and then not maybe recognizing what life will actually be like. I mean, I think the birth plan right? is a perfect analogy because I mean, how many of us, like if I read my birth plan for my first child, like, ha, joke's on me, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I had a C-section. None of it worked. <laughs> yeah, so I think... Literally, what a metaphor for us because we yeah. spent all that time and then I had, I, I had an emergency C-section mm-hmm. literally thrown out the window in the name of the baby's safety and, yeah. and healthy birth. And okay, well, I spent a lot of time thinking about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So I think there's kind of two, I think people maybe fall into two different camps. One is like, they have this plan and then life, you know, has different, you know, whether there's structural things that change. Also, I mean, a lot of people mentioned in these open, because people wrote, gosh, these, I just love women. They're so generous of their time filling out the survey. I mean, they were writing, you know, little beautiful little essays in this survey about their path and their, you know, experience. And a lot of them were just people really not not knowing what you don't know what you don't know. And so women, it goes both ways. It was uh, women who quit their job, you know, two days back from their maternity leave because they just couldn't leave their baby. Or Mm -hmm. I also heard of women on the other side that always thought they'd be a stay at home mom and they hated it. And they went crazy and their husband, you know, or partner like really encouraged them to find some work after, you know, so I think we just, it's hard to, we put so much on, you know, we put so much on the individual to have this crystal ball of what, things yeah. they want or what their kit, what's going to be right for them. And I think that's a big piece. And then the other, so that's kind of one, you know, it's like the over planners yeah. who don't know what they don't know. And then the, I actually had to create a separate code for, you know, I had a question that was like, what else did you, you know, think about, talk about, or consider right. made plans. And so many people wrote in 
we didn't have a plan that I actually had to like code that as an option. <laughs> so that's another thing I think, you know, if we're being honest and, you know, it's amazing what percentage of these, although I did survey adoptive and foster step parents, you know, a lot of the um, respondents obviously were birth mothers. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of them, it was a surprise pregnancy. It's like kind of shocking how many, you know, so many people said, I didn't even think I could get pregnant. And then, you know, or we didn't. Here I am. Well, an adoption. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I worked with a, a lovely lady who they put up for, you know, applied, did all the work for a domestic adoption and expected, boom, you're, you know, there's a baby and this yeah. baby needs you. And, and it was as surprising the most surprise! Oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I swear that baby is my best friend. Every time. <laughs> I love that baby, um, who's now like a teenager now. But I still, you know, they're all babies to me. But immediately, I think the discussion in that family, the discussion in my family, was about well. So now, when we go to structure how this is all going to work, so now we're in it. You know, the baby's yeah. here. Mm-hmm. We, you know, I had planned. I knew that we had vetted all the the childcare. You know, we had the function in place, but when it came time to execute it, I immediately started thinking about my schedule and my, yeah. you know, like, and I like, I cannot be alone. On, tell me, I'm not alone on that. That it wasn't just, it's not just oh. me. I think the moms start thinking about their mm-hmm. schedule changes Thank right you. out of the gate. Yeah, and it's and that's just part of. I mean, I think we can't ignore the fact that as progressive and as educated and powerful as any woman is, like we still exist in a structure where, on average, women absorb the impact of children. There's a lot of unspoken. I mean, down to the way workplaces are set up. Is you know, I mean, we one of my jokes in the survey, or as I've conducted some follow up interviews, is like when you're a pregnant woman and you're you know at work or you're just moving through the world, like you get asked a million times, like, well, what are you going to do after the baby's born? Which by which they mean, are you going to keep working? Yeah. Are you going to, and I, I guarantee no one asked my husband that. No right. one asks men, like, what adjustments are you going to make? Um, and I right. think even if, and, and granted, there's exceptions. Like I, you know, I was very inspired by a lot of survey respondents that, you know, were <laughs> smarter than I was and thought about, you know, had co- very explicit conversations with their partners. And they had this whole elaborate plan of how they would equally share the, you know, kid gets sick days or the, I mean, they're just, Talk yeah. it out, man. I I think yeah. in this era of COVID, the, it, mm-hmm. what, look at me uh, making it, localizing the story to the moment. When you see these, uh, like, I guess because I spent two hours with my high school principal talking about all the eventualities they're thinking about, if you talk out this stuff, it helps with the planning. So I, I, I say to all the new parents out there, talk it all out. Yeah. Think about all these things because you're always so much happier if you talked it out. That's my pitch to the new ones, the new parents. Talk it out, man. I'm on the same page. In fact, I had to, you know, I told all the women I've been interviewing, like, look, I have no agenda. And this can be such a fraught kind of personal, you know, you can do research about working mothers and you can have an agenda of like, you know, any women that don't return to work or, you know, impacting our cause and, or, you know, vice versa, like the stay at home mom camp can feel, you know, this kind of mommy wars thing. I, I would tell everyone, look, I have no agenda. If I just want people to end up I want them to have the where they want to be. And I think we before we even know where they want to be, then it's hard to, you know, first of all, we have to ask women, where do you want to be? And and then, you know, as far as I really, as much as I love academia, I do feel like we, you know, can publish these papers and then they can kind of be just in an echo chamber where 10 other people read it that, you know, study it. Yeah, yep you know, similar thing to you. And so what I'm thinking a lot about is this idea of translating research into 
you know, how do you actually use this to help, you know, whether it's still a conversation, right? But yeah, that is, I could feel like if I turned this into a book, I think the thesis would be, but here's all these different stories. And by hearing the different paths people have taken, um, I mean, one thing that's really interesting to me that's come out of the interviews and some of the survey data as well, but was this idea of kind of if I had known three years, like if I had gotten to the point or if I could see, I guess, what I would have felt like with a three-year-old, I might've made a different decision at six months, right? Like sometimes it's just, you're in it. Yeah. You're in it. It's hard. And I think, yeah, sometimes having, so a lot of people that did stay engaged in the workforce and feel good about that, they often cited that they had, you know, a mentor or some type of person that they had seen go before them and show you know, the way. Yeah, yeah, that type of thing. So I just think I'm really a believer in, as kind of cheesy as it sounds, the power of, you know, women's stories to be able to, you know, inform yep. what it actually feels like on the ground and, you know, yep. what, what ways we can, you know, I always say like, I don't, I'm not trying to get everyone to, all, you know, all mothers to enter the workforce. I'm not trying to get long maternity leaves necessarily. Like if that's not the thing that women want, but I think, you know, we do, you know, we do owe yeah. it to women since, as you know, you know, 76% of women with children are in the workforce. Like, we're already yes. here, we're already doing it. So let's, you know, figure out like, what were the things that made it easier? What would have, you know, what would have helped you? What would have made it less stressful or less, you know, traumatic? I mean, for a lot of women, those, it's traumatic the way that they are trying to juggle these things and, and frame the discussion in their own head and their own families. Why I'm thinking that is how many women would say to me and still do that my wages barely covered child care. <laughs> and yeah, right. I mean, it's like, well, what do you mean your wages? <sighs> if, if you're a team and a family, I hate that. I hate no. that statement for one thing, because maybe your partner's wages barely, I don't know. You know, I totally get the budget part of it. I completely do. But what is uh, that weird framing that I guess childcare is replacing your skill as a caregiver, your, your exercise as a caregiver. And that I, I don't, it's just, let's, let's get the framing right. Like when you, if you're going to figure out what makes sense, let's take the gendered language out of it. You know, it's so incredibly gendered. And, and again, I'm not chiding any woman for speaking this way, because I'm right. sure I, you know, I think I have made choices along the, my life where I look back and think like, completely. Yeah, why did I do that? I mean, in, in the interviews, I'll have a question where I say like, and did you ever consider that your partner would be the person to, you know, for heterosexual yeah. couples, that your partner might be the one to adjust their work? And, and sometimes the women are embarrassed, you know, because they're like, um, I guess not. Um, no, you don't have no, to. I didn't. You're, not, wow. you're in the majority. That's like, that wasn't the, the thought. And so I think the reason we compare our salaries to childcare, it's like this idea that women, that, that, that something is optional. I mean, one of the, I don't know, one of the things if I was writing a book about this, that I would, I don't know, want to title it almost is this idea of this woman really kind of on a really ranting. She was feeling really strong. <laughs> in the interview it was awesome. But she was like, I had to choose like, and she had had this career in the military, loved her work. I mean, but it, she just yeah. got to the point where she could not physically do this job um, in her situation. Yeah. And she just said, my husband didn't have to choose. And I think about that. That's like what rattles in my brain, you know, mm -hmm. just that we're forcing kind of, we tend to be for, you know, it tends to be women that are forced into this situation of choosing one thing versus the other or thinking, you know, they need to, but they have to, you know, like, or assuming that they have to, I think that's because I'm completely with you. Like every survey that we ever did with the working mother research Institute, the big 
through line was always, if you're doing it the way you want to, they're always happier. So every Mm -hmm. time we talk to women uh, who were stay-at-home moms who wanted to be, this is part of their plan, always 10 times happier than the people who were home that who didn't want to be. Vice versa for working moms or part-time moms or um, even like we did surveys of people with MS at work or whatever. Like if you can be open, if you can kind of live the life you want, have the autonomy to do the life that you want, even with all the stress and all the yeah. factors and all the things, you're always happier. So it's, yeah, I'm with you. It's it's not about, not at all about judging your choices. I just want to make sure it was your choice, You that you really did look at tough factors and made, and you, especially if you're in a, a partnership that everybody's partnering, you know, that partnership mm-hmm. involves us all getting involved with that. So Yes. Yeah. No, I, that's exactly kind of my take. I actually, for the thesis research, I kind of designed this image as I coded, you know, these thousand responses to the, what else did you think about, talk about, consider as you, you know, decided kind of how to balance these things. And I kind of view it as these three interconnected circles of preferences, resources, and logistics. So resources, obviously, you know, financial. Um, So did you have, you know, so people that have high resources are going to get to choose you know, they're going to be able to execute those preferences. Right. Preferences are more like, whether it's, it's just kind of people said a lot, like, I always knew I would keep working or I always knew I wanted to be home until my kids are in school. So that's kind of that innate preference. And yeah, personally, I don't, I have no interest in changing preferences, but what I, you know, and then the logistics is the, you know, kind of that third circle that intersects with those two. And that's more of who made more money or we didn't have family in the area or, yep. you know, all these different things. And I just think, you know, so I, I jokingly in the in the research said, like, who are the unicorns that fall in this perfect center spot? <laughs> they have the resources and their logistical situation is such that they can completely enact whatever preference, yeah. you know, whatever scale side of the um, you know preference they fall on. I don't, I don't care, but I just hate to see, especially in that logistics area, people have a plan or a thing that they think would be the right thing for them. But because of these logistical barriers, you know, don't get me started on the lack of support yeah, right. for families in this country. Yeah. But, you know, as far as how to change that, then I think, okay, well, where can we intervene to at least get more people in, you know, how do we get those overlapping areas a little bit wider, you know, so that more women get to fall into that nice category of like, yeah, that's pretty good. Like, this is- I want to be a unicorn. Yes. (laughs) And I think it kind of requires, you know, I mean, of course, the, you know, women at Google maybe have, you know, some of those supports that make it easier. But I think there's, you know, there's other things that we can do to kind of make the, like, at least reduce the barrier for that logistical side and the resources side. And a lot of it is just, yeah, having- more honest conversations about what it looks like to be a working parent, what those first couple of years look like. And I think there's a lot of room for change and growth. I love thinking at a public policy level, but even on a a smaller scale than that, just employers really getting a sense of what these women are going through, what it feels like to them. And then partners, I think are a huge piece of it, you know, getting, getting the conversation to center on not starting from an assumption that one or the other person will you know, absorb these impacts. Right, really. right. I know. Cause if, if you never ask for any help and I'm totally not guilting people who aren't asking for help, I, that's not, but if you don't, and you don't make your needs clear, this is like everything they tell you in relationship stuff. And, and I'm terrible at this stuff too. So I'm not saying like, you know, I've got all the answers, but I do say people can't read your mind. 
in yeah. your house, you yeah. know, and, and here's a spoiler alert for when that baby grows up. It's good to practice on your partner because you're going to end up with teens where you have to say the same thing three or four times to get them to do whatever they, whatever you need them to do. So yeah, amen. yeah. That's uh, that's very real life. That's from my household. Oh my lord! But anywho, I'm sorry. I won't go on the teen parent rant. Yeah, quite yet. But. Your next podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so, what happens next with the research? Where does it go next for you? Well, so I I've conducted 45 interviews that were an extension. So of those 1,700 mothers, over 500 volunteered to be interviewed. So from that, I, I kind of tried to pick out just particularly interesting stories or just stories that I thought really captured, you know, a repeated theme that I had seen. So I'm working on transcribing and kind of analyzing those interviews for some further publication. And then for my dissertation, I think kind of the two main failings of the first round of research was, first of all, that it's retrospective in nature, which I think is just challenging. I mean, we all right? Like I can tell the story of how I made a decision 15 years ago, and it's going to be colored by a lot of things. And I think Mm -hmm. it missed, I think, well, I know it missed the voices of those partners. So my dissertation that I'm kind of in the planning stages for, I'll be hopefully conducting research starting next summer is to do a longitudinal study with pregnant women and kind of track them in real time. So as they're making these plans, interview both them and their partners and see like, how are the decisions playing out? And then check in at 12 or 18 month intervals for at least the first two years and just see what barriers they came up with in real time or what adjustments they yeah. made to try to capture people in that gap. Yeah. I um, love it. Yeah. So all of that idea of like, let's let the, the people on the ground, like let's listen to what is actually happening. I mean, it's, it's great to know that women reduce their hours by 8%. I mean, that's an important statistic for certain policy and for, you know, it's a component of it, but I think there's definitely room for filling in the gaps with actual stories and, you know, things that can't quite be captured in, you know, I know myself when I fill out a survey, I'm like, eh, kind of this one, but not really. Or are you talking about for my second kid versus, you know, so that's just, when you're doing interviews, you can just get into all that nitty gritty stuff. So that's my hope. Right, well, so you have a little on your plate. So that that's good. I'm glad I, I was worried that you wouldn't be yeah. busy enough with uh, <laughs> you know, to keep myself busy. Thriving money making academic or I'm being terrible about academia, but it's true. Come on. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. I might go into the private sector after I get this PhD and you know help I won't tell that's just that's just between us. You know, we won't tell. <laughs> well, how can people follow you? How can they find you? So I do have a website that it's not super developed, but it does have uh, it's called the push and the pull.com. It's funny, the survey was originally called the work like a mother project. But apparently, that's a small business owner who helps moms who have left the workforce, uh, which is also oh, what we have if you're in that yeah, we like that too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So the push and the pull.com that has some preliminary findings from the survey research. I'm also actually doing a study right now on uh, mothers who collect disability benefits, kind of a side project. In <laughs> yes, I love it. So currently that website has a little bit of information about that, that study, but that's where I'm hoping to kind of have a landing page, you know, as I move forward where people can get in touch. 
and see what right. I can do. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure we'll link to that. So thank you for joining us on The Breadwinners. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed speaking with you. It's been wonderful. And you'll find links to what we're talking about and the push and the pull in the episode description, wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit us anytime at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com to ask a question, share your story, or to offer some feedback. How are you making it work? We'd love to know. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review it. Let us know what you think about the breadwinners. Help us tell the stories that mean the most to you. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's voices amplified.